Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. My name is Alan. With me here, as always, is Sol. Hello. And with us this week, a very special guest. A man who has earned enough money to satisfy his needs and his caprices, and now only does the podcasts that interest him. It's Calvin Dyson. (laughs) I do. I don't have to watch, like, in Rocky films or anything that I don't care about anymore. (laughs) Great. Uh, that was a quote, uh, well, a kind of para quote of um, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, because mm. although it does not appear in the Branagh version of the film, uh, but that is the film we are covering today. Mm. So we're kind of covering the Branagh version because Death on the Nile is coming out soon. Mm. So we thought, let's look at Branagh's last Poirot adventure. Yes, the 2017 uh, Murder on the Orient Express. For anyone unfamiliar with Kenneth Branagh, but who has seen him in a film without realizing, <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I went back and watched some other versions of Murder on the Orient Express as well, just for a bit yes. of context. Versions, yeah. Well, there's one other. There's one other classic version, the 1974 Sidney Lumet film yes. with Albert yes. Finney. I, I would say that's the definitive version. Um, that's that's one I'd already seen, and I went back and rewatched earlier today just to mm. refresh my memory. Mm, likewise, yeah. But what's the other? One? Oh, they did it with David Suchet, didn't they? Yes, obviously David Suchet. David if, Sushi. <laughs> anyone who uh, knows about Poirot, I guess if you're a Poirot fan, David Suchet did the whole bloody thing uh, on TV over a period of about 25 years. Uh, Murder on the Orient Express was one that they did a feature length episode, an hour and a half. I watched that. I also watched an American version of 2001 starring um, Alfred Molina. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll come to that in a bit. And I also watched the Japanese version. It was quite recent. Hmm. Um, 2013 or something. Oh, interesting. Uh, so I can talk about them a little bit, just as context, not to mm. get into them too much. Can we set up, um, j- just before we go in, can we just set up the spoilers that we're going to go into here? Because I want to know this for as much my own sake. Um, I guess we're going to be talking about the plots of Murder on the Orient Express in some detail. So revealing who done it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, so yes. For anyone who is not aware, it's a mystery. It's a who done it. We will be revealing who done it. So if you don't know the story, yeah. look away now. But we are not going to be talking about, am I correct, we're not going to be talking about Death on the Nile, because I don't know no, who I hope, I, am not, I hope not, because I, I don't not know who it, done it. So. <laughs> Good. Okay, lovely stuff. Good. I Good. just wanted to... Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice to keep that surprise, because I, uh, I had this spoiled for me going into... Uh, in fact, I'd, I'd just like to preface this episode by apologising in advance in case I call this... Uh, murder on the Planet Express at any point. That is an episode <laughs> of Futurama, and I'm I'm just very aware that I might accidentally say the wrong name without realizing. Um, but yeah, Murder on the Orient Express. I had the ending spoiled before I ever saw it, and I think that's a shame because it's a it's a really nice twist. I think. Hmm. Yeah. Well, as as someone who's watched five versions of it over the last week and a bit, <laughs> um, uh, I can attest to how well it works when you know the ending. It's not as bad as you'd think. It's <laughs> it, it does still have some hold, and and there is an element of like, okay, knowing what's going to come, how am I reading this differently? Like you start to see the characters in a different light. So yeah. it's it's kind of interesting to watch it a second time with the knowing the ending, but. It is, yeah, you want to watch it without that knowledge. It's going to be the best way to watch it, I think. 
Well, I suppose, I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead here talking about exactly why the Kenneth Branagh one exists and why they're bothering to to do it when... Um, I, I guess I guess one of my main questions is that I don't really know who these films are for in this day and age. I know that the marketing <laughs> was quite the trailers were very mm. slick and they had uh, you know uh, that um, believer song on which was quite popular at the time and all that. But I figure that most of the people who would watch these kinds of you know cozy murder mysteries on a Sunday night already know who done it, so maybe they wouldn't bother. Or is the appeal just yeah. seeing? Is it like you go to see Hamlet? Well, I don't, mm. but people do. Uh, but you, yeah, you know, you know thing. what it is. You're you're just seeing it. Well, that's it. Like I mean, Murder on the Orient Express is a popular uh, theatre piece as well. You know, it, it's a stage play yeah. that gets put on. You know, the bloody mousetrap has been on for 72 years or whatever yeah. it is. Like, it's obviously that's mm. not Yeah, but that, necessarily... that is the longest running play in history, so... Yeah, exactly. But my point is that people know... Actually, I've seen it. I can't remember who'd done it in that one. But <laughs> the, the, the problem with Murder on the Express, which we are going to spoil, is that the who done it is a very easy thing to remember as a kind of concept. Yes, that yes, is the concept, yes. in fact. So it's not like, oh, yeah. was it was it the butler or was it that bloke with the red yeah. hat? I, I can't remember. Mm. And it's also it's also something where I don't think they can get away with doing a kind of revisionist update that takes mm. you by surprise. They kind of have to yeah, what, adhere how do you to twist the it? <laughs> basic structure. Hitler dies piece. at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think there's still a subset of uh, your casual film goer who do go based on the cast, mm. uh, pretty much primarily. And so, for someone like that, you know, the, both of these films were clearly very appealing. They they've both got pretty magnificent cast lists. Mm-hmm. Mm. Purely, if you're talking about the the name power, you know, the the star power. Can I can I uh, point out here? This is just out of interest for that. Um, I've got the two DVD boxes in front of me here. So a little quiz for you, okay. In oh, uh, yeah. in the 74 version, it's got all the major cast. So it's it starts with Albert Finney. Poirot. It's got 13 other members of cast, the sort of principal 13, in oh. alphabetical order, just as it kind I of to of make it nice and... So uh, don't ask us to name... <laughs> no, 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 no. But so okay. in the Branagh version, yeah. there are the names of nine actors, and they are the same nine actors that are pictured on the front of the DVD cover. Hmm, so okay, which okay. nine actors do you think got the nod out of the sort of 13, in the 14 one. principal actors? Yeah. Can we take it in who turns? Are the, who are the selling points? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go, go first. Go back so, so presumably, is this, this is not including Branner, right? If he is on there, it would include Branner, yeah. He's one of the actors. <laughs> All right, I reckon Bran is on there, like walking in front of the train, but separate from everyone else. Or... <laughs> yeah, he's on there. It's, it's it is a bit of a kind of co- it's it, it's set in a train carriage, and it's just them in there in a kind of photoshopped way. It's so yeah. Oh, okay, but yeah, okay. Bran so, um, is correct. Right, I'll go Johnny Depp. Correct, he is right at the front mm-hmm. sat. Yep. I I reckon Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, she is there. Judy quite Dench, front, quite front and center. Judy Dench is the other one. You've you've picked the front four, uh, oh, so now we're getting okay. further back. Okay, okay. into the dregs. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I reckon, I reckon Daisy Ridley got on there. Uh, that is correct. Daisy Ridley yeah. is there. Uh, Penelope Cruz must have been on there. Penelope Cruz, yes, she's yeah. there. Builders Academy Award winner Penelope Cruz. Mm. Of course. Um, Josh Gad. Josh Gad is there. Well done. 
Hmm. There's two two more. Oh. I I I'm gonna uh, I don't wanna say the other one in case Saul guesses them. <laughs> uh, would they put Willem Dafoe on there? Yeah, okay, Willem Dafoe. Willem That's Dafoe who is, I would have guessed. He is there, he's so far at the back you wouldn't really be able to tell him, but huh. he is there, yes. Okay, there's one left. Who is it? <sighs> who are they putting on the cover? I don't think they would have had the foresight to put Olivia Coleman on the box for <laughs> a film like this. So I'm going to go with, is it uh, Leslie Odom Jr.? Who plays Dr. Abuthnot? You are correct. Ah. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And in fact, he's wait, wait, wait. quite far forward. He's next to Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, I'm glad but I didn't no, go for... Der- I was going to say Derek Der- Jacobi can fuck off, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, come back when you're Judy Dench, mate. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then, obviously, there are some other actors in there that I don't even know the names of. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess they, they weren't going to get the, the nod, were they? Uh, I don't know them off the top of my head. The foreign ones, shall we say? <laughs> the ones with just well, the ones with real accents. So yeah, there it is a ca- It is a good cast. Um, mm. So, but this is so the basic principle of this is you've got Poirot, and then you've got thirteen passengers on a train. Well, twelve passengers and the the help, the conductor guy who's just running around after everyone, and mm. then your other principal character is Book, who is. Um, the kind of a director of the trains who is a friend of Poirot's. So he's knocking about as well. Mm. Right, so that's quite a big cast. Mm. It's an ensemble uh, story. And in all the versions I've seen, that does push it towards feels like you're not getting the most out of people. Because mm. it's the sort of thing yeah. where it attracts yeah. these great actors and then you don't really see much of them. Yeah, no, I well that that's I don't quite know what the I'm guessing that the first murder murder on the Orient Express, the seventies one, was the one that kind of set a precedent for just these star studs. Like you look at all of the Poirot films in like the seventies mm. and eighties and stuff, and they're all just like you know, it's just like you know a, a dozen famous people all coming together. And I like I say, I don't know if that is just the the main draw and appeal of these kinds of things. Um, that people just know them so well, or you can just look up the ending, so you need to sell it on the appeal of the stars rather than the mystery. Yeah, yeah. the problem with that, the problem from an acting point of view of that is, it's not like, oh look, it's a small part, but we'll need you for two days, come in, film this one scene, done. It's like they're involved throughout the whole thing, they're in the background of a dining car, and you know what I mean? It's like, mm, it's mm. for for. For a big name actor who's not going to get much to do, you're asking quite a lot yeah. of them. Well, th- you're asking almost everyone to give quite a generous performance by just allowing whoever is chewing the scenery as Hercule Poirot <laughs> yeah. to like mm. dominate, you know, walk over them in a in a scene. Because mm. um, you know, I, both film versions I've seen, I imagine all versions of this are are really all about look at our quirky detective with a fun voice and a silly moustache. <laughs> mm-hmm. An increasingly silly moustache. So. <laughs> you know, I, I thought the Kenneth Brenner's moustache was quite... Uh, I, I, I quite enjoyed it, actually. I'm glad they oh, didn't yeah. just do that usual like little black one with the... Yeah, I think it's magnificent. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a beautiful bit of work. And it is a, it is a thing. It's a Poirot thing of having the finest moustache in England. Mm. But it's like a moustache and a beard. It's like he pretends his moustache is bigger by putting some beard <laughs> behind it. I think it's very, um, 
Is that cheating? It's a very, uh, yeah, it's a very, <laughs> what's the word, like, dis- dishonest moustache, to be honest. Well, apparently, <laughs> Agatha Christie saw the Albert Finney version and was unimpressed by the moustache. That's That was her main disappointment. She said it oh, really? No good. Not, oh. not uh, fabulous enough. That's interesting. Huh. So, let's, how do we crack into this? Because it's quite a dense thing, really. Well, yeah. Uh, there's a bunch uh, of people on a train... Someone gets murdered, but Poirot's there, so he's going to solve it. We have a lot more uh, preamble in the latest one. And Alan, have you read the book at all? I have not. Okay. I I have read about the book. Because (laughs) I I have a feeling that the 70s version will be much more faithful to what's on the page than the latest version where Poirot has his own sort of like pre-title action sequence to show off how great a... I, I don't is. know, but my that really felt like they just took the ending of another lesser book and stuck it on the start of this one. Was that a brand new mystery that he solves in the opening of the new Murder on the Orient Express, or is it? Does anyone know? Is that based on some mystery he solves with jewels and things? Don't know off the top of my head, but it is possible. It's quite a lot of short stories with Poirot, so even that. That could yeah, be like a it, small story that they just threw in. That there. really felt to me like they just grabbed another story and went, "Oh, we'll just start with this. We're never going to adapt this into a film anyway." The the pre-title sequence sort of thing in I don't think it's an actual pre-title sequence, but it feels like one the little sort yeah. of five minute introduction thing uh, to introduce Poirot. Um, I think they do mention it in the seventies one as well as like, "Oh, that business mm. in uh, Jerusalem it's a different, or whatever." It is different case. I just feel like it was an expansion on that because they probably felt that they needed to give him... Because I can't imagine that the, the trick he does by sticking his stick in the wall and then the guy runs into it. That doesn't mm. see, That doesn't sound very Agatha yeah. Christie to me. Mm. It's a little bit hokey. <laughs> but I guess they want to show that he can, you know... It doesn't just rely on the other policemen to apprehend the... Yeah, it's visual. Mm. For moviegoers to see. Yeah. <laughs> I I do think that's a nice opening for that version, to be honest. I think it really... They were correct to assume that they kind of need to establish Poirot as being this mythological being who is just the best detective in the world and has solved millions of these cases. And, you know, this is the most difficult case he's ever come up against because it's so unusual. And mm. um, I like that. I mm. I don't like that it's them pure chance that puts him aboard a train where this incredibly elaborate <laughs> murder happens to take place. <laughs> that all seems a bit contrived, but uh Well, that's the nature of these things, isn't it? You just have to buy the you know, how however many stories he was in, like uh, what, a hundred or something. Yeah, you know, he just so happens. Yeah, to... but he's a he's a professional detective. He's normally summoned to solve a case, isn't he? Yeah, he and in this one case that, it uh, wasn't. That's alright. Mm. 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 <laughs> How many murders have you Look, stumbled have you seen upon in your Rebel, time? Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that's bad no. for it. <laughs> yeah, if if Angela Lansbury checks into a hotel that you're in, just get out immediately because yeah. someone. If you're friends die. with that lady and she comes to visit you, you know, like you're either, either going to die somewhere. or be done for murder. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So uh, one thing that annoyed me about this, the opening on this Branagh version, a couple of moments that just jumped out to me as a bit like, oh, God, this is going to be a kind of safe whitewash nonsense. So he's in, where is he, Jerusalem? Um, yes. 
and he's making a fuss about eggs because that's what he does. Oh, yeah. He needs two eggs of perfect size. But that is shown by having this little ethnic boy <laughs> running around, happy as Larry, a big smile on his face, trying to get some eggs for Mr. Poirot. And it's just like, oh, yeah, it's one of those, like, it's one of those children who really loves working first thing in the morning to serve the rich white man who's coming to town. <laughs> and of course, like, because Branagh gives him a little wink and an egg, it's like, oh, everything's fine. Isn't Poirot great? But ugh, it just made me kind of like, ugh. Just, you know what I mean? Do, do you know, am, I, am I expressing myself with ugh? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it is there. It is designed to sort of show, you know, like if you want your audience to like a person show them being yeah. nice to children or animals yeah, a child <laughs> but, in your employ well <laughs> yeah i mean to serve you. Th- that's where it does get a bit icky but um i think it is there yeah for that purpose and then that was kind of just compounded quite quickly after when he's in istanbul and he meets book and books there with the prostitute he's off to have a bit of a laugh with the prostitute and she's like hey i'm a prostitute it's great isn't it i love my job like you know one of those <laughs> prostitutes who loves having sex with people for money, you know how they all do. So those two things kind of together just made me think, oh, well, we're not going to get any edge in this, are we? It's just. Gonna be... Well, I'm not. I'm not being funny, Alan, but he's he's quite a good-looking man, isn't he? I bet normally she's probably having yeah. to have it away. Oh, and with, like, he seems like he's chucking the champagne around or whatever. And all so that. she's probably she's she's probably you know it's it's like. It's like a really good day at work, isn't it? It's like when I used to go into the office and there'd be some sandwiches left over from a board <laughs> meeting. You'd be like, wait, this is brilliant. Free, free sandwiches. Yeah. I reckon it's just like that. She's like, oh, great. It's not like someone who's physically repulsive for a <laughs> Yeah, of course. Uh, but anyway, so... But this plays into one sort of issue I have with Bernard's um, version of Poirot. And that is... I don't think we should like Poirot. He's Ooh, supposed to be a total dick and mm. quite unlikable. I think they I think he's supposed to be that in as in that's how it's written. Mm. Not just that's how it's commonly Why? done. Why? Because he's a knob he's, and he's like very fastidious and very interested in his own thing and if your tie's crooked he can't stand it and he's just Oh yeah, I mean he 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 basically says uh, he has a speech in this version of the film where he basically says something like I'm incapable of yeah. human emotion or something doesn't he? Um that's why I'm good at solving mysteries because I have severe OCD and it's a real issue and it gets in the way of me enjoying life. Mm. But at least I'm good at solving mysteries. I can only see the world as it should be. And uh, when it is not the imperfection, it stands out like uh, the nose in the middle of a face. It, it makes most of life unbearable. But it is useful in the detection of crime. But here they do sort of play up that it's like, you know, it's almost like a curse for him and he's aware of it and he, you know, he's he talks about yeah, his obsessive yeah, yeah. compulsive disorder and all that kind of stuff. And in the other versions that I've seen of this, he, he like, he's very vain and it's certainly in the 70s one, he's just kind of... Oh, he's extremely vain, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was a... a... That, and that was part of the character, you know, he's always well presented and everything. Mm. Uh, dyed his hair when he got older because he was embarrassed about it. But he's, mm. it's... It's a thin line between kind of lovable eccentric and dick. Mm. And it's like you you need to just push over to, onto the dick side of that. I I think Poirot needs to be there. This mm. but this version of the film it, it it's it's quite a kind of safe 
happy version as much as it can be about murder and such tragedy. Mm. I agree. They they make him your more traditional lead, and he's got like a photograph of a woman he used to love and all that kind of stuff that he talks to. And yeah. it's you know he 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 you know he has a few moments where he's sort of like, no, I'm I'm not going to do investigating this. He has the call to action thing and refuses it before he actually takes it up and go. You know, they hit a lot mm. of very familiar beats. And I, just to compare yeah. to the David Suchet Poirot, which is kind of generally considered the the kind of ultimate Poirot performance because he did it for 20 odd years and he's a method actor, you know, he, he read all the stories, got every bit of character information he could get and then was very insistent that it was true to the books and all that. So when I watched that one, he is quite unlikable and you're still on yeah. his side. But he's he's not a likable person. And Agatha Christie wrote Poirot stuff for 50 years, and she did not like him as a character. So she didn't write him as a nice character. She thought he mm. was dick. So the Poirot I watched uh, with, with Suchet, uh, I, I feel like that is probably more akin to the books. That's a bit of an assumption because I haven't read the book, but, you know. Do you know yeah. he uh, carried a penny in between his buttocks to get the <laughs> walk just right for Poirot? <laughs> I can believe that. I, I really know very little about Poirot and the legacy of the character and all that. So, you know, mm. I, I'm really coming at... All, my knowledge of the character is purely based on watching these two films. That's kind of the extent of it. Yeah. So that's interesting to hear, because, yeah, I definitely wouldn't get that read on things. I might have thought he was a bit of a dick in a way where I thought I was having a sub... Uh, subversive reading of the film where I was like, this guy's yeah, a bit yeah. annoying, isn't he? But I'm clearly meant to love him. Yeah. Um, but out of interest, why why do you think it's better to not like him? Like, why, why is that version, that take on the character superior to the cuddly grandfather figure that we kind of get in the Kenneth Branagh version? Um, I guess, again, I kind of brought it up with the earlier discussion we had because it feels like it's lacking an edge somehow. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a bit more darkness to uh, the other version I watched. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll come back to this when we get to deal with the ending. But basically the way that the Suchet version ending is, um, I'll talk about that later, and it is... It is different, and it, I think that's a very yeah. a lot of that is down to the character and how it's expressed. Um, okay, so basic setup is he's he's going back on the Orient Express. His friend Book gets him a, a seat, uh, well, gets him a berth, and you know we start to meet the other characters, uh, and like I say, there's quite a lot of them, so mm. it's a little mm. bit bitty, but I think it's it's pretty well handled. We start to get an impression of who's there. A lot of people are introduced as this like sweeping sort of sing. You know, it's presented as a single take. I, I don't suppose it would be a single take, but I thought it was very effective. And they, he mm. almost mm. introduces everyone in that single take. I think Judy Dench and Olivia Coleman come in a little bit later, but I, I really liked that. I think for something like this, which can feel quite stagey, and that's one of my main criticisms yeah. of the '70s version. Um, mm. I appreciated the cinematic flourishes and some of the uh, yeah elaborate camera work and. Uh, the like that went into this one. Yeah, I, I'll second that. Yeah. There's a nice bit in the 70s one where the train actually sets off, where they make this really big show of this long mm. shot along the train, and then it, and then it sets, pulls out. Because the, the stuff earlier in the Istanbul station there felt very, like, it just looked like a set. It felt a bit too well, clean. Yeah. Mm. Um, but then you, you see this train pulling out, and it's very 
kind of glorious train spotters kind of shot of it. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> can I can I just in a very broad uh, sense say that I much preferred the the realism that came with the seventies version purely by virtue of it having to use a real train. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I I was not a fan of the extreme use of CGI throughout the two thousand seventeen version. There's a lot yeah. of shots that, especially are when they come out and animated, we see the scenery. And yeah, things like that. It, it it just mm. it just looks like the Polar Express at times. It's just <laughs> yeah, it's very... just not quite good enough, is it? Particularly for yeah, the time. and and it's. It's a shame because you know it. They're shots that would be lovely, but it just makes it feel very fake and smaller. Mm. Uh, you know, they're they're obviously shots that are there to give it a sense of scope, and the fact that they're so fake <laughs> and computerized kind of makes the film feel smaller to me. So, mm. yeah, I'm not a big fan of the aesthetic of the newer one, to be honest. I, I know what you mean. I think it's a deliberate kind of very flashy, high color, glossy kind of mm. take. It's, it's a shame because I, I like the dynamic camera movements and the more modern aesthetic in general. Mm. It was easier to watch on a you know pure level like that. But yeah, just too much CGI, crap CGI. Just yeah. there's a specific shot where we we have a direct overhead uh, when the body is discovered. Um, a very uh, unusual shot. It's one of those shots that breaks the world slightly. It breaks the setting because we're having to see through the ceiling. Mm. Um, yeah. I think he gets away with that. I actually quite like it as a moment. Mm. It does feel a bit out of place. Like it feels like it's a sort of Wes Anderson kind of shot. <laughs> Um, what's that Wes Anderson film on a train? There's all sorts of stuff like that. It, I, it did, it did make. Yeah, I did keep thinking back to uh, the Darjeeling Limited at certain <laughs> camera shots, just because I watched that film quite recently as well. I agree, I agree with Sol on the CG on the train, and I'll, I'll tell you what. It, it bothers me when I don't mind CG being used for these kinds of things. It only bothers me when they use the camera for the CG shots in a way that a camera could never possibly be placed in real life. Like, it's yeah, just yeah, put yeah. into places mm. where it's like, well, this you would never be able to get that shot if you were using yeah. a real train. And, I, you know, maybe that's the whole point of doing it in CGI, but it breaks the... Yeah. It makes it feel like I'm playing a video game. Mm. Yeah. Um, if, we're, if we're doing this kind of direct comparison back and forth, I think it's probably worth noting that, uh, of course, the, the 1974 version is directed by Sidney Lumet. Uh, we've spoken Saul's on this favorite podcast director. about, yeah, he, in, in one of the recent Diminisodes we did, we looked at one of my aggregated film lists where I, I rate directors' entire filmographies, and remarkably, my favorite director based on an average score of of their body of work uh, for me is Sidney Lumet. Mm. Based on the films of his that I've seen, I, I give his films an average rating of 8.2 out of 10. I, I, I am mm. a big fan of his work, actually. Um, and on the flip side, the 2017 version, of course, directed by Kenneth Branagh, I, I'm starting to think Kenneth Branagh might just be Maybe not my least favourite director, but he's up there. He's no Paul W.S. Anderson. But but I really don't like him as a director. And I, I just, I've got to touch on it. Because we, we did Hamlet, the Kenneth Branagh directed, yeah. allegedly written, <laughs> starring uh, movie quite recently on the show. Did you like it? No. I I had far more respect for it than you might think but mm. i i think we all agreed 
that the weak link was Kenneth Branagh's ego. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I look through his, his films as a director, he he directed the remake of Sleuth. I despise the remake of Sleuth. I think it completely and utterly doesn't get what makes Sleuth work. He directed 1994's uh, Frankenstein, which is mm. a mixed bag. He directed Thor, which, you know, I, I think I'm on record as liking, but, you know, it Marvel, Kevin Feige doesn't let you step too far out of the box when it comes to Marvel. And even then, Thor's not one of Marvel's best. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of his Cinderella. I don't think he knows how to direct films. I, I think he's <laughs> he's obviously come from the stage, from the theatre. Mm. He knows how to chew the scenery and, and kind of give a big performance. I don't think he particularly knows how to serve the other cast in his films. And... I think he locks in on specific things that he wants to do as a director that he then does over and over without much understanding for the film as a whole, and it ends up taking you out of the film overall and not working. Mm. Such as, for example, the the Dutch angle every five seconds mm. in Thor, because he thought, oh yeah, he's he's out of his own world, it's a bit weird, we'll have a Dutch angle, cool. But then it's like every single shot is a Dutch angle, and it's just like, uh my God, come on. Just for anyone who doesn't know, a Dutch angle is basically putting the camera on a bit of a tilt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's usually an establishing shot, isn't it? It's that kind of, oh, everything's a bit skew-if, a bit off-kilter. I I can't say I've got anything particularly against him. I, As an actor, I, I yeah, I think he can stand out. I, I, th- I don't think he can be a team player, perhaps. <laughs> mm. I think he needs to stand out. But I appreciate that as a director, he's just like going, I'm just going to make films where I can be... Like, I want to play Henry V, I'm going to make that. I want to play Dr. Frankenstein, I'm going to make that. I want to play Thor, I'll make that. And he just puts himself in well, his films. Well, wait, hang on. <laughs> I was just imagining... Yeah, if this film had had Chris Hemsworth as Poirot, I'd probably be all in, to be honest. But... <laughs> oh dear, can you imagine? I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, do you know what? You know, probably, it probably for be the Chris best, Hemsworth. It'd be Channing Tatum who'd do it. He'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he'd be great. <laughs> oh come on! You know he would actually. He would take it really seriously. He'd grow the moustache. <laughs> he'd really go for it, and it would be great. Channing Tatum's one of those ones who'll just surprise you like that. It'll just yeah, <laughs> surprise me. Um, I'm I'm re- quite agnostic on Kenneth Branagh. I've never <laughs> been bowled over by him. Um, equally, he doesn't annoy me. He's there. I know that we're supposed to acknowledge him as this great British thespian. Um, but I I don't like Shakespeare, so I just I yeah, maybe I haven't seen his great roles. Um, I think he's pretty good as Poirot here. I I think I like him more than Albert Finney. Mm. I initially I thought, oh god, that's a ropey accent. <laughs> um, but it did feel like he got into the rhythm of it after a while. Maybe I just needed a bit of time to get used to it because you know I don't imagine they shot it in but in what, order. What the so. Belgians sound like? It's kind of French, but it doesn't have to be that like French. Tintin. <laughs> <laughs> 
The uh, cast is certainly younger and sexier in the uh, 2017 version than it is in the 70s version. Yeah. I don't know if they just yeah. deliberately made people up in that one. Like, some of the makeup is pretty time. terrible in that 70s one. <laughs> don't know if they're sexier. Michelle Pfeiffer's in the cast, Alan. Yeah. And who's in the other one? Lauren Bacall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we we haven't spoken about the cast in the 74 version. It is a remarkable cast. To be honest... If I if I was like told you can make a film with these actors at you know this point in their life, I'd go for the seventy four cast. I, I mean, what a bunch of actors you've got! Albert Finney, love Albert Finney. Uh, Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery, obviously. Mm. Uh, Anthony Perkins. It's it's like a rogue gallery of of Calvin favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York. I love Michael York. Um, that that is a remarkable cast. I think yeah, that's better rest, than yeah. the select. Yeah, it is. Um, a, I I read something. Do you know anything about this, Calvin? I read something that they cast Sean Connery first because they thought if they nailed him, like other stars would come because he was the biggest star of the time. Oh, um, when was it? Nineteen seventy-four. That does make some sense because he would have been coming off of uh, yeah, Diamonds Are Forever. So uh, his career had a little jolt from that. Mm. Oh yes, no, I'm reading. Yeah, Lumet went to Sean Connery first, saying that yeah, if you get the biggest star, the rest will come along. Yeah, and then Ingrid Bergman joined afterwards. Yeah. Mm. Well, Ingrid Bergman won an Oscar for this performance. Really- yeah. I think it's a wow. great performance. I mean, it's it's one scene, but I think she is pretty phenomenal yeah. in it. That's it. Most yeah. most of the characters here get like one good scene. It's the interrogation scene. He brings them in one yeah. by one. And he questions yeah, them, true. and that's when they get a chance to show something off. And yeah, and I and I will say, I will say this version. Yeah, they do actually show something off in their moment. I I can't say the same is true of the. 2017 one. I don't feel like everyone does get a mm. a shining scene in the new film. I think Michelle Pfeiffer gets a really good scene. Yes, yeah, she's pretty much the only person I think who does. Yeah. Well, they were trying to get Angelina Jolie in for the uh, Michelle Pfeiffer role. Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. She doesn't yeah. make any sense. She's too young. Yeah. They've aged her up because, like, that character has to have two adult children and uh, an established acting career you know like you feel like that's got to be someone well in their 50s at least and mm. you know which michelle Pfeiffer is but mm. angeline jolie would have been about 42 or something yeah well the, 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 the next person on the list was charlie's theron which is equally baffling <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> well michelle Pfeiffer kind of makes sense because it is this sort of uh, she well she puts on this front of being this sort of quite slightly desperate uh, older woman mm. who's just, you know, a divorcee and all that kind of stuff. And uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer, fantastically attractive woman and very charismatic and all those things, um, I buy more the, of her as the pathetic sort of uh, trying it on with everyone she sees. Whereas if Angelina Jolie was doing that, <laughs> I don't know if I'd buy that people would just be like, oh, for yeah. God's sake, here she comes again. She's kind of got to be a little bit over the hill, hasn't she? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I really I really like Lauren Bacall in in the seventy four version because it's not yeah. just the look and everything, just the way she's talking and all the little cracks about her, them like going, oh god, she's never going to shut up. Let's yeah. do this like that. <laughs> they it all plays so well in that version because she's yeah. such an irritating mm. presence, mm. you know, yeah. deliberately. Yeah, that's true. Mm. I will say though, I I um I watched Grease two the other day. <laughs> Uh, which of course was a very, very young Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, 
launch pad, really, wasn't it? But what struck me was she, she much like someone we're going to be talking about next week on this podcast, she really grew into that face. She didn't look right as a 20, 20 year old, (laughs) however old she was. It was weird. (laughs) But, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer is one of my favorite. I've got a real soft spot for like stardust Michelle Pfeiffer, 2007 Michelle Pfeiffer. So, you know, I, (laughs) I, uh, I, yeah, I think she's very well, very well uh, put to use in this film. Mm. Although, you know, if anything, it's a bit silly to buy that she would be struggling for attention because she's a she's a very beautiful woman. Is mm. she struggling for attention? Is she? She's well, I don't, know. I don't see her particularly like trying to get some action. She just she thinks yeah. everyone's coming on to her, and she just acts as if they are. The difference is I kind of feel sorry for her. I don't feel sorry for Lauren Bacall, I guess. In yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, there's, the, yeah. there's there is just a sense of um, tragedy about her character in the newer version that I didn't quite yeah. Yeah, pick up on in the, the older one. Which is appropriate for what they want the character to do in like the final act. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. The likes of Daisy Ridley and Leslie Odom Jr. will have been <laughs> studio picks. Like, nope, you're going to put uh... these young people in there. Yeah. I want to talk about Daisy Ridley. Oh, okay. <laughs> should we? I mean, should we get into that now? Um, yeah. We we spoke about Daisy Ridley in I think two previous Star Wars episodes, and I think in both episodes, Alan has made a point of what a terrible, terrible performance <laughs> uh, she's yes. given. Yes, um, I, I think I've said something to the effect of I really want to see her in something else because I get the impression that she is capable but nothing about this role or the yeah. you know whoever's directing her is allowing her to show it um i mean she she's awful in this too <laughs> oh. uh, and <laughs> i i i mean re- she's really bad but i i still want to go to bat for her because i still think <laughs> I still think there's something there. I still think if you pair Daisy Ridley with like a really good director who cares about their actors, they could get something good out of her. Mm-hmm. I just don't think she's got that natural, you know, give her a script and leave her to it and she'll be away. And I think to be I get the impression that well, you know, I'm not a big fan of Kenneth Branagh's directing as we've spoken <laughs> about. I'm not a big fan of JJ Abrams directing and I do love Ryan Johnson, but I don't think his focus was perhaps on the performances in The Last Jedi. Well, I, as mm. someone who's said she's shit before, I didn't think there was anything wrong with this performance. Uh, not that it particularly jumped out at me either, but I mm. thought she was fine. It, it took me about 20 seconds to realise it wasn't Kira Knightley. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, okay. Uh, but I think you can only go up from Kira Knightley, can't you? It's funny. I thought it was that classic thing of like, half of her lines were delivered really well and I thought wow that was really nice but then half of them were just like ooh you know was that the best take of that it was it just felt very but then like I say that speaks to me like a director who's not paying attention to what his actors are doing and mm. I'm I'm still not quite I haven't given up on her but it certainly felt like it was in favour of your camp of her being a bad actor. <laughs> mine. Uh, didn't bother me. I thought she was fine. Uh, so who else have we got here? We've got Johnny Depp. Mm. Yes, uh, yet another inexplicable accent uh, on Johnny Depp this time. Now, 
I think that's just how Johnny Depp talks, but it took me a while to figure out what accent he was doing. Relics, antiquities, rugs, weird, orientals. I'm new to the game, so, you know, I got the amateur eyeballs. But I got a little problem with these, uh, so, these uh, so-called appraisers. You can't trust a one of them. I wondered if there was a bit of Italian in there, because obviously... It's supposed to be an Italian-American. Yeah, so I, fi- I figured it was going for that. But he's also doing a very gruff, kind of rough... But he's, gonna... he's got that kind of... Yeah, I, mm. I don't know, I, I get the impression that's just his voice now. He's got this weird <laughs> kind of American, but there's like a bit of a British put-on twang mm. in there, and he's, he's, you know, smoked a lot and drunk a lot of whiskey and... <laughs> Are we I, allowed to like Johnny Depp like, again now? Like has he, has he come out the other I, side I now? Read the news, but I like Johnny Depp as an actor. Every, think... Everyone hates Amber Heard instead now, right? It's swung the other way. Is that right? <laughs> Amber Turd, as he called her, <laughs> after she shit in the bed, literally. <laughs> yeah, it's clever. Very clever wordplay. Mm. Um, yeah, I like I like Johnny Depp generally as an actor, and I I did like him in this. Um, I liked that you could tell he's doing a bit of improv in there and, and playing with it. Mm. Um, and, Pat, and I didn't get that impression from anyone else. <laughs> I think he's a bit of a, uh, you know, a thing onto himself. I, li- I liked him immediately because the character walks through the, t- the thing as dogs on the table. Most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's like, <laughs> that definitely wasn't the scripted line because it doesn't fit. <laughs> with what, but I liked it. <laughs> I, I think I find the whole the whole Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing really upsetting because, well, they're clearly both toxic people that mm, deserve each you other. probably shouldn't aspire towards in any way, shape, or form. But I would probably still sleep with either one of them. And I just <laughs> that that really upsets me. It's like I can't write them off. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you got to sleep with people you hate. <laughs> <laughs> so it does give you a, a different experience. Mm. So let's let's run through the other cast. Judy Dench, fine, classic Dench, but she barely does anything. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, there. She turned up, and it is a role where you can have a lot of fun with that. I've seen other versions where there's been more there. I think she just doesn't feels like she didn't turn up. Just didn't really mm. care. I can't remember the last time. It felt like Judy Dench actually like turned up to a performance. To be honest, okay. for me, I'm not sure that. Well, that, that's what I'm thinking of <laughs> specifically. Uh, Josh Gad, mm. the young up and coming. Hey, yeah, Josh Gad. Nice to see a um, not quite a different side of Gad, but certainly his talents being put to a slightly different use. I'd say quite effectively. I, I quite liked him in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I liked him. Yeah. Not only does he not sing, he doesn't do like a comedy pratfall at any point. In the oh, stuff, he does so. fall. Yeah, he's he down that scaffolding, oh, down underneath <laughs> that bridge. Damn it! Damn it! Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to make a direct comparison here because in the '74 version, his pl- that character is played um, somewhat eccentrically by Anthony Perkins. Mm. And yeah. Anthony Perkins is one of those people who will play a character unlike anyone else could. Um, and I think that brings a lot to that character in the in the seventy four version. Yeah, like it or not, <laughs> I actually do like it. I think it brings a really nervous energy to him. It's perhaps twenty percent too high, but um, mm. 
it, it really brings a lot of character. It's like he turned the dial up on his own Norman Bates performance with exactly, all the stuttering yeah. <laughs> and the strange mannerisms and so on. Um, whereas Josh Gad, I like him in the film, but in, you know, I guess it feels appropriate that he would be Johnny Depp's sort of right hand man. But um, mm. it's a bit, it's a, it's a more boring performance. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the other way. To be honest, it's Josh Dad dialing himself down, right. which is the opposite of what mm. uh, Perkins was doing, which is. <laughs> Mm. odd but but i think people would have complained if josh gad had been you know running around and shrieking with his shrill <laughs> voice and <laughs> farting and whatever he does in his adam sandler movies these days mm. um so we have leslie odom jr who mm. i don't think i've ever even seen anything else i know he's more known for doing hamilton and and mm. stage stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah, because he's along with Josh Gad yeah, on the poster yeah. where it's all Academy Award nominee, Academy Award winner. It's uh, him, Josh Gad, and Daisy Ridley don't get that uh, sort of head. <laughs> Poor them. Yeah. Well, they're, they're Tony winners, I imagine. A lot mm-hmm. of them, probably. I, I I don't know if that's true, but Daisy I know Ridley's Book of Mormon and Hamilton anything, both or... swept the... Uh, oh, yeah, uh, Daisy Ridley won the competition MTV to be Star Award Wars. for Best Kiss or something. <laughs> Because she did win the, the MTV Movie Award for Best Breakthrough Performance. <laughs> oh, there you go. I pitched it down even from that. <laughs> uh, best Screen Kiss. I'll give The Rise of Skywalker Best Kiss of the Year. <laughs> I was... Ne- I've, I've never been more aggressively shipping a couple <laughs> of characters in a film than when I was watching that film. But, you know, I, I was annoyed it ended with a kiss, to be honest. I, I really wanted them to just... Bang. Just fuck each other. They, <laughs> like, I really wanted them to just fuck. For their sake. It, was, it wasn't it was even, like, a weird, horny thing. I just felt like they they earned it at that point. <laughs> Three films of that tension. They deserve it. You know. So, we have Leslie Odom Jr. as the replacement for Sean Connery. Yes. <laughs> Big shoes to fill. What, size 11, 12 shoes. Uh, and um, at least does something which Sean Connery doesn't. <laughs> yeah, does fuck yeah. all in that film. <laughs> Absolutely, may as well not have bothered turning up. Who's the Daisy Ridley? Is it Vanessa Redgrave in the other one? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, because I, 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 th- I think both of these, like th- these parts, are just a bit sort of nothingy anyway. Yeah, they're like young lovers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, but but at Secrets least I, at, le- at least I get the young part in the Kenneth Bra- in the Kenneth Branagh one instead of uh, Sean Connery and <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave. Um, yeah, but yeah, it is in in that seventy four version. Sean Connery really does do nothing at all. He, he kind of comes in to defend the lady at one point, and sort of. I thought that was a good scene. Slaps Poirot with an open hand and. <laughs> that's that's probably my favourite scene in the whole thing, to be honest, that one. Yeah, mm. I, I really like that. The, the tension builds up quite nicely. He thinks that Poirot's like, slapping his uh, his girlfriend and he barges he says, That's my in. job. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 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 but that is, that's the bit where we see Poirot is willing to kind of change his befa- behaviour to fit the interrogation, you know? Mm. Yeah. And pretend and act emotional when he's not. I like mm. that. I like seeing that in the detective, like doing that kind of thing. Mm. We mm. Don't, don't really get that with Branner particularly. Uh, no, um, but the adding all this stuff with Branner and his uh, his long lost love that he occasionally Emma talks Thompson. to. 
Is that who it is? Yeah, so you picture of a young Emma Thompson. I did not know that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's another one of his mates he called up. Well, it's his ex-wife. Oh, is it actually? Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Can we talk about the uh, the main motivation? Because basically, we haven't really talked about, I'm assuming if people have made it this far into the episode, they probably know what the uh, what the plot is. But it is essentially that all these people on the train all share this same backstory with um, these people, the Armstrongs, right? And uh, the little girl was yeah. killed by... So basically, our, our murder victim is, gets killed in the investigation. We find out his real identity. Uh, yeah, he was a criminal who kidnapped and killed a little girl and then caused tragedy to the rest of the family, but got away with it. Mm. Uh, and so someone has claimed vengeance upon him. Mm. And so it's tenuous. <laughs> well, I mean, I say tenuous. They do justify... Everyone, I guess, coming in and it's all like yeah, pretty much. sort of family friends and uh, people who really cared about this young couple whose daughter was murdered uh, and and they all band together. I think that this whole uh, backstory is handled much better in the uh, in the 70s movie than in the Branner one, um, where the 70s movie opens with it. We have this sort of like flashback sequence and it's all very mysterious and sort of filmed like a silent film which i thought was quite nice uh but in in the branner one it's just kind of dropped into a conversation and all of a sudden we get flashbacks kind of in the middle of the film and to the extent that i found it quite confusing actually in the branner one uh do you agree with that because i think it's it's quite difficult i know that they sacrifice in an ideal world you open up with that backstory um or at least some details about the case they sacrifice that because they want to put the uh, spotlight on Branner's Poirot and introduce him as this sort of dashing hero type mm. uh but i think the story itself might suffer as a result of not having that set up up front hmm i i i don't think it's a bad thing that it gets revealed later on because it's obviously something that gets revealed later on. Why would we know anything about that at first? If we're if we're mm. kind of playing the audience is learning with Poirot, mm. um, so in that sense, I kind of like it. It's hard for me to judge because I watched this. It was like the fifth version I'd watched, so obviously I knew the back. Just those snippets of backstory, like I already know what's going on. So, mm. um, I, it's a bit hard for me to judge that explicitly. I don't know. It all made sense to me, I guess, but I know the story already. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it's tough when you're trying to sell this really important thing matters to all these people, but we're not actually there for it, and we only see it in these kind of flashbacks. That is a problem yeah, when something only gets yeah. revealed at the end, like in a murder mm-hmm. mystery, and it's like, oh, right, that's why. Yeah. Well, uh, having watched several versions of it and knowing the, the ending, uh, what I did notice is that Watching it, knowing what was coming, didn't change the viewing of it. It's like, mm. I want to see a little moment between a couple of the characters. Where you're like, oh, I wouldn't have noticed that, but there's something going on there. Or or a, or a hesitation, mm. or or a, someone saying the wrong thing and then kind of moving off. You know, something, little, little things that wouldn't mean anything on a first watch. And there isn't, basically. There isn't much of that at all. Um, yeah, and that's a fine yeah. line, because obviously you don't want to be too obvious about it. Mm. But it, it is a bit of a, um, a frustrating reveal in that all these people have been able to not just carry out this murder, which was a thing of passion, I understand that, but also be able to lie directly to someone who is a very skilled interrogator and, and be able mm. to keep that up. And I know there's the odd little slip or whatever that starts to give him a clue. 
But, you know, there should be a weak link in there somewhere. There should be someone who... Yeah, I I think Josh Gad's character should just be saying lots of stuff along the lines of, like, what are the odds that the world's greatest detective would be here, for fuck's sake, and having, like, a panicked breakdown about that. I, I... Yeah. Mm. But it's, it's difficult, though, because you don't want to give anything away. You don't want to make it obvious. I um I, I kind of touched on this earlier on about the cinematic um more cinematic quality I feel of Branner's version um and I think mm. it, it it really helps like I'm comparing it to the 70s version again but it's it's difficult not to because there is the same story but just told two very different ways um I yeah. got really I I can appreciate some of the claustrophobia that you feel in the 70s one about being trapped on this train but at the same time it does become like the middle portion is just Poirot wheeling in people one after another and having and yeah. they make a, they make nice jokes about it. Martin Balsam's character at the end of each character's yes. in, interview is like, they did it. It was definitely them at the end of every yeah. single person. I thought mm. that was funny. I did enjoy the kind of him and the Doctor bit of a comedy mm. double act kind of thing going on. Mm. And that mm. is not in the Branner version because the Doctor character is kind of enveloped into Arbuthnot. Hmm. I, I I kind of agree with you, Calvin. I I find the seventies version weirdly uncinematic mm. for a film by Sidney Lumet. You know, the, the the man who managed to make Twelve Angry Men mm. like really visually interesting, despite it just being twelve people in a room talking. Mm. Um, what did you think of the score in that nineteen seventy four version? Because yeah, right. it really jumped out to me as being slightly out of date. Like, it felt ten years out of date. Like, it, it felt like this big kind of theatrical score that you would put on, like, around the world in 80 days or something. Quite fantastical and, and overblown. Mm. The whole film felt like it was going for that kind of vibe to me. Like, the opening title cards and everything yeah. it all felt quite like a throwback of some kind. But it's not it didn't feel like a throwback to the 30s. It felt like a th- when it's set. It felt yeah. like a throwback to the 60s with like big big musicals and and and, yeah. and big fantastical spectaculars. When they show you the uh, the flashbacks to the, like the Armstrong case and everything, like it is filmed sort of like a silent film, like they do um, overcrank, undercrank, whatever it is, the camera, um, and they do you know it's some sort of Nosferatu style shots, yeah. uh, German sort of <laughs> silent film looking, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting because that they, that was in the past, obviously, but some of the makeup really baffled me, and I didn't know if that was supposed to be indicative of the period setting or what but some of the women just had this like plastered on like white makeup like uh i I don't know yeah yeah i mean i'll be honest i'm not a big fan of the direction Mm. in sydney lumet's version and it's weird because he's your favorite director well statistically (laughs) speaking but no i mean he he is up there he's a director i really do like and, and think a lot of his um direction normally i i find murder on the orient express to be a weird blip in his career Mm. uh it's not to say that i dislike the film but i just don't think it feels like one of his there's Mm. nothing outstanding about it particularly but you know it's all very nicely the set and the costumes and all that really set the scenes it's you know it it ticks those boxes you know costume design and all that Mm. yeah um i i I do want to just i know we kind of dealt with the actors, but we didn't mention Derek Jacobi and I wanted to know him because I think he's very I just think Derek Jacobi's a really good actor. And even in a mm. small scene in managing this, I think he he stood out to me anyway. Mm. Deserved his name on the poster at least. <laughs> well and and replacing John Gilgood in the from the previous film, it's mm. you no know, again big shoes to fill. But it's a classic mm. English butler role. Mm. 
can I talk a bit about the other versions I watched before we yes. get into the ending? Because like, it'll lead me into the ending. Lovely. Okay. Quickly, uh, let's talk about the Alfred Molina version. It was made for American television. Um, but the big, th- the big thing it does is it was made in 2001 and it was set in 2001. Oh. Which, do you know what? It's got a bit of a bad rep, <laughs> this version. Hmm. I actually found it quite watchable. It, it wasn't, I think it handled all that quite well because there's like a bit, when we start to see the flashback moments of what happened with this case with Daisy Armstrong or, or this little girl that went missing, he's he's like watching that on these like videos on, on the internet. Which is, and it's like this really old-fashioned kind of internet explorer kind of thing. Yeah, there's a couple of flip phones. Um, Actually, I think they do a good job of modernizing it without it losing the tone. I actually thought it worked okay. But it's still sort of set on a train that's quite old-fashioned in its style, and they're isolated from civilization. So you kind of lose that time anyway. It, It doesn't really matter. Um, so once you're on the train, I think it's okay. The other big change they do is there's only nine people or eight people instead of the 12, 13. Hmm. Which hmm. I think makes sense if you're trying to simplify something. It may have been a yeah. slightly shorter version. It, yeah, it yeah. loses that poetic sense of 12 jurors kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. that's okay. And it simplifies it a little bit because... There are definitely ancillary characters here that you can get out, take yeah, out of this. Absolutely, yeah. They're the ones that Kenneth Branagh didn't cast as his friends. Um, they're the ones who are just actors we've never heard of and we haven't mentioned, even though they were perfectly good. Um, so, <laughs> so we've barely mentioned Olivia Coleman, actually. She, that's true. Yeah, we. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Alfred Molina as Poirot. He's not really doing Poirot. He sort of does a bit of an accent, but he's not. They don't really not worried about any of the actual kind of classic character stuff of Poirot, the little eccentricities yeah. or anything. He's mm. just a detective, basically. They don't really go all in. Mm. But do you know what? I actually found it perfectly watchable as a kind of run of the mill who done it kind of thing. Mm. It was all right. Now I watched the Japanese version. Yes, which uh, was from twenty fifteen. I just looked. Oh wow! Recently. Yeah. Was that actually like? properly authorised and based on Agatha Christie, or is it some yeah, kind yeah. of... Oh, wow, okay. Is this the miniseries that they made? I don't know what they would classify as. It's it's sort of... It, it claims to be two episodes, but they're both like two and a half hours long. The first episode is your classic Murder on the Orange Express story. Mm. So I watched that, and I knew there was a second episode, and when I'd read about it, it said, oh, it's, a, it's a, an original story that's not based on Christie or whatever. So I thought, okay, they've just they're doing another Poirot story or something. But actually what it was, the first half, the first episode, two and a half hours, is the full on Murder on the Orient Express story as we know and love. Hmm. And then yeah. it comes to the end and he does the big thing, the reveal and all that, and the Mrs. Hubbard equivalent says to him, Okay, Mr. Poirot, you've worked it out, I'll tell you everything. And then the set and then it ends. And the second episode is the story. It's all these characters, the the kidnapping, where they were at the time, ah. how they all got together to decide to revenge. And then you're seeing the other side of it. Mm. Oh, oh my God, cool. Poirot's, the famous Detective Poirot's on the train. What are we going to do? We're going to have to quickly change our plan. Huh. Which well, cool. I did not watch 
because it's two and a half hours long. What am I made of time? But <laughs> I, I, I kind of saw they do a, at the end of the first episode, they do a kind of what's coming up next. And it, it kind of, it was obvious what it was. Hmm. I like that as a concept. It, it's an interesting way to explore that story further and, and, and in, get in, get into those characters that we don't get into. Hmm. Hmm. Out of interest, who, who plays Japanese Colonel Abutnot? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's funny, it had a, kind of a Scottish accent, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's not a good production. It's very cheap. Like, it's obviously a TV thing, but it, it does look cheap. Is it set on, like, a bullet train? No, it's set in the 30s. With everyone crammed in. <laughs> the conductor, like, <laughs> shoving everyone in because they won't fit. <laughs> Um, it is set in the 30s, apparently. If I was asked to guess okay. based on watching it, I would have gone with 60s, because the suits just felt a bit kind of more mm. modern. But, okay, whatever, the 30s. And I was curious, like, how is that going to translate? Because Murder on the Air Express is a very kind of British style, mm. British feel to it with this American influence. How is that going to translate to Japan? Uh, as far as I could tell, it's pretty much the same. They, it, it, there wasn't any yeah. obvious kind of like, oh, they're expressing this differently because they have a different class system or, or this. There's little bits and details, you know, like the one who's the character who's like an Italian American. He's instead he's from kind of a certain bit of Japan where like they're a bit rougher and they're really suspicious of him because he's a bit sounds like he's got a rough accent. Hmm. But you know, like things like that. Yeah, but it's. It, it it looks cheap, just in general set and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, and I don't know how that tran- like I don't know what Japanese television is like, to be perfectly honest. So I don't know if that's typical or not. From what I've seen, it tends to be quite quite digital looking, quite cheap. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I don't I don't see any reason why Japan's TV would be any greatly different from British. If like if you're setting out to make a nice period yeah. drama, you'd think you'd be able to go all in and. And do it. Yeah. Mm, yeah anyway, yeah. I don't know. But it's they do go quite full on comedy. Like the score is kind of like do did it do 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 like that kind of comedy score. And the guy playing Poirot is pretty like full on. He's like a little Mister Bean, right? Is what he's. He's very Bean esque, and it, there's some pretty broad comedy moments in it. Um, mm. Which, you know, it doesn't particularly add to the tone of the piece. It feels very superficial all the way through and not especially very good. But what about the David Suchet one? Yes. So I have more to say about that because Ah. it is much more of a classic take. This is your Christie novel. They're doing it justice. Mm. It's also essentially a film. It's an hour and a half long. You know, it's it's full Mm. length. TV budget, but... It's handled well from what I could see. You know, being set on a train, it's a relatively limited set you're having to work with. The way it's filmed was perfectly nice. Uh, You know, not big dramatic cinematic things, but Mm. it worked for what it is. But the, the big difference really is Poirot. And that is because Suchet playing Poirot, I think is probably more true to the classic novel Poirot. Mm. But also, he's been playing for 20 years by this point, and he knows what he's doing with it. And that means he is more of a knob. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's like quite irascible. 
and he's not interested in being friendly with anyone. He doesn't care. Mm. And this comes out at the end, particularly, because when it's all revealed, he doesn't gather them all together and go, hey, everyone, so this is the big reveal scene. Uh, Everybody sit down. So here's what's happened. You know, he's worked out what's happened, and he's not happy about it. It's all so cold. They're all sheltering together in this train carriage. So he's stuck there with them, and he kind of knows what they've all been up to. Hmm. They don't really know by this point. And then it it's slowly kind of revealed and dragged out of him what he knows. And they quite readily kind of confess to it. And then it becomes this whole thing. It's, it's very atmospheric. It, it's much more emotional. We see all the... The, the other people in on a more emotional level, which, hmm. like I say, I think that's what I was missing somewhat. They acknowledge their part in the murder much more openly. Then it really becomes about their saying, look, you know what we did was in the interest of justice, so you should not dob us in, you know? Like, tell the police it was just this lone killer, whatever, assassin. Hmm. The, the last sort of 20 minutes of the whole thing is just him struggling with that concept Mm. And it really tortures him. And it, it's just, it blew me away because you do, I have not got that sense from any of the other versions. You know, Kenneth yeah, Branagh yeah, yeah. is kind of pissed off at them and he tells them off. But it's like, this is a big turning point for Poirot where he has to choose mm. truth or justice. Is it for him to decide what is justice? That's for the law to decide. It's And it's this very drawn out, quite long thing. And he's and there's that we even set up previously. You know, he's a Catholic. He's he's struggling with that kind of concept. He's praying about it. Mm-hmm. He's he's you know he's talking about Catholic guilt, um, and the ca- Catholic ideas of forgiveness and stuff like that. Should he forgive them? Should they have forgiven this other person that did them wrong? There's all this kind of stuff, and not quite as directly as I'm telling you, but it's all in there. Mm. Yeah. Suchet yeah. is acting his little socks off. He's doing a great job. But, but, and by the end, just Poirot just looks drained. He's tired. And then he gets off the train and he goes to the police and he basically tells them the the, the fake story. Hmm. But even then, he takes no pleasure in that. You can see that's going to torture him forever. Hmm, this is yeah. going to be something that is on his mind. He gives them no quarter, really, until right when he makes that decision. Hmm. And he is disgusted with what they've done. He thinks they've taken the law into their hands and they are murderers. And it takes yeah. everything for him to let that go. Mm. It's really, really well done. And it, and it, it, I don't know how much of that is in the book because that isn't really come across in any other versions I've seen. That strikes me like someone who watched the 70s film and, and went, ah, this is really not how I'd approach this story. Because mm. I, I really did feel both versions of this film were were lacking in that. We never really see the weight of what is a big decision on Poirot. It's it's just done it's thrown away like a little gag. Yeah. Like this ridiculous story could be what happened. Or it could be this, which is clearly what happened. And I think it's da, 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 the ridiculous one. Hey yeah. hey, we're all chums. They definitely you know, they make the they do invest in it a little bit, yeah. But yeah and I, I think that I think that probably comes from the fact that this is a Poirot twenty years into a series this is a character that's been going for 20 years even though i'm watching this as a separate entity this character has evolved and and changed like so i think as a series 
you're playing to an audience that has invested in this character and understands where yeah, he's come from. Fair point. Yeah. So you can get away with that a lot more. Well, they mm, felt they yeah. could. But I, I think that you know, because because they have committed murder, premeditated murder, and they have taken justice into their own hands and you know i think a lot of people would be quite (laughs) upset to learn that had happened in real life i i do get some of a sense of what you were talking about not to the extent that it sounds like is in the tv version but uh i i certainly get more of branner's poirot being torn Mm. um than the 70s one which is like i couldn't quite believe how the 70s one handled it anthony perkins character literally sort of gets up and like takes a bow and everyone just sort of shakes hands and like oh yes isn't this great sort of thing and the music (laughs) even goes kind of jolly and it's like oh this isn't quite I, i guess in the Branner version, we do have Michelle Pfeiffer acting her socks off, and she, you know, is yeah, about to commit he... suicide at one point. So that is, there is some kind of repercussion to it, and she kind of takes the but blame that, for everyone. That else. feels like a really kind of blow to the face, uh, yeah. yeah, dramatic moment. He kind of tests her, doesn't he? Mm. He kind of gives them a test with the gun and the newer one to mm. to almost prove their worth mm. for being allowed to get away with it to prove that they're not bad people mm. um just one other thing about that uh, Suchet version the killing scene so we actually get that flashback of them killing ah. uh, toby jones it is in this version ah <laughs> it's so good it's much better than any other version i've seen you get a much better sense of intent from it all you really feel how much they want to kill this guy mm. and They've done it in a way that he's drugged, so he can't really move, but he's aware of what's happening. And the old lady, Princess Dragomirov, she sits by his ear and she tells them why they're doing it and that he's going to like burn in hell and that I want you to be awake so you can see everybody you've hurt is getting their revenge. It's so brutal and, 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 and emotional. And every one of them just comes in, stabs him and walks off. It, it's so much better than the other versions I've seen. Hmm. Okay, yeah, because the 70s version is like, I mean, I, I kind of like the Branner one, it's a bit more frantic, and they're passing the knife around quickly to, yeah, to do yeah. it, whereas in the 70s one, it's this I don't like either. slow carousel of people coming in, and oh, we yeah. have to listen to them all. It's very ceremonial. Yeah, and, yeah. and it, it just doesn't work, because it's like, well, he's probably dead by the time you get to the <laughs> it, Yeah, exactly. Uh, it feels like they're posing for mm. the flashback photography sequence in a movie yeah just just on a complete tangent alan i i looked up the actor who played the uh japanese equivalent of poirot in the japanese series that you watched uh a guy called mansai namura who plays a character called takeru shuguro their equivalent of poirot do you know uh which other iconic character he's played in a in a film we've covered on this podcast Godzilla. Yeah. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah. He played Godzilla in Shin Godzilla. Oh, really? Which uh, I'm guessing was a motion capture performance, because I think Godzilla's CGI in that film. He's a very odd... Like, he's he's doing a kind of quirky character, and he's like, he kind of pulls his chin in, and his back is really straight, and he just... does. It sort of says everything with a silly voice. It is not a subtle performance. I'll tell you what as well that that Japanese version is owes very heavily to the 1974 version. Like there are a couple of scenes that are exact shot for shot, like mm. um, distinctive looking shots. Like when he sets up the hat box thing and he burns the letter, 
and it, the way that's framed within this kind of little booth mm. thing that they do that and the fact that he has these little psychics the train director and the doctor who are kind of a comedy duo that they do that as well it's um it's extremely similar to the 74 version i think that's basically what they based it on hmm. just just for a little bit of um entertainment uh, some of the actors in that david Suchet version mm-hmm. hugh bonneville is playing the butler oh all right downton abbey's <laughs> yeah the same year that downton abbey started ah although this episode was like christmas the christmas big christmas one of that year so downton abbey <laughs> must have already been on by then mm. and playing the um, mrs debenham the uh, vanessa redgrave slash daisy ridley character mm. is jessica chastain oh oh wow before wow. like just the year before the help ah. um so she must have been relatively unknown not young, like not a young unknown. She's about thirty-three or something, but she obviously wasn't an established mm. actor. And I don't know if she was in Britain or something, doing something else. And they want we want an American actor because obviously that that character has an English accent, but it was ultimately revealed she's American. So mm. she's doing the English accent and everything. There's a couple of the you know known actors in it, but yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. Mm. Cool. So talking about the ending there. Any other thoughts on the ending in the Branner version? How it's played. I just much preferred it to the 70s version, just everything. I felt like it was much more suspenseful, a lot more drama. The 70s version is just sort of like, haha, I found out how you did it and it's fine. I'm not going to throw you all in the jail together. And uh, they're all very happy with it. Uh, it, Yeah, no, I I get drama and suspense and all that stuff from uh, the Branner version, whereas the 70s one just as a whole, I just think it's a bit flat in that respect. Yeah, I understand that. Oh, do you know what? It kind of annoyed me, generally. In the, mm. This is obviously from the original story. So, you know, there's there's 12 of them, and they all take one stab at him, and it's like, it's this, yeah, this nice little poetic tie-in with the 12 members of a jury. That's nice. Mm. Except there's 13 of them. And mm. it's just a bit messy, because, like, the one of them, she's too much of a wilting flower slash drug addict to be able to do it, and so her husband has to do it for her, mm. and he's just there. And it just feels a little bit messy and sloppy with that. If you're going to do the 12 thing, just make it neat. Yeah. You know? Like, you could have him as one of the 12, like, it's his wife who's been hurt, so he's involved or whatever, but mm. I don't know, it just didn't yeah. quite work. And in the Branner version... They didn't even bother casting an actor to play the husband. He must be a... Mm-hmm. I don't know who he is, what he is, but they obviously didn't trust him to speak. <laughs> <laughs> they said, look, just do a flying kick onto this extra in a really weird scene at the beginning, and then just stand next to this woman while she pretends to be on drugs. <laughs> Very crap characters in the Branagh version, those two. Yeah, and they just sort of pop up towards the end, and you kind of forget that they're there. They're not played by anyone sort of that I recognised anyway, so... Right, I'm really interested actually, Alan, to hear your rankings of all of the versions that you've seen. I'm really appreciative right. that you did the hard work on this mm. so we didn't have to. <laughs> well, I yeah. was I was kind of really curious as to how it would be seen in different times and, and different places. And actually not that much difference. They really stick to the plot. I, I, I was particularly a Japanese one. I was really hoping they were going to go, like, really do something different with it. Yeah, they didn't. Mm. A bit disappointing. Um, okay, I'll go in. I'll go in chronological order then. So, yeah. Murder on the Orient Express, nineteen seventy-four. I gave that a seven out of ten. Um, 
I give the 70s one 6 out of 10. Uh, enjoyed all the cast, and uh, there's plenty of moments to like, but overall I just found it a quite underwhelming experience. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I gave it a 7, which is a very... About as low a seven as one could give, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, it's it's. I agree. It's it's a solid adaptation. It's quite a, an underwhelming one at the same time, but yeah, yeah it's fine. Have you? Has that affected your Sydney Lumet ranking? Mm. No, I, I'd already seen this uh, uh, prior to last time we spoke about Lumet. Reason. No, no. Okay, so <clears throat> I'll go through the other ones I watched. Uh, the Alfred Molina version, I gave a 6 out of 10 to, which I, I think is generous, judging by the what I've read about other people's opinions. Hmm. But frankly, it worked. It was fine. It was not nothing special, but it, it told the story functionally. Yeah. Then the David Suchet version, the 2010 Poirot TV version, definitely the best by a long way. I gave it 8 out of 10. Hmm. I, I really enjoyed it as well. Like having, I'd already seen Branagh's version, like, Maybe a year ago, there was the first time I saw it. So I'd seen that. I watched the 70s mm. version. I think I watched the Alfred Molina version before this. So I knew the story and it still managed to bring something new to it and, and keep me engaged. I, I, I think I quite like to watch this David Suchet show from uh, I'm on, I, start to finish at some point. You know? I've mm, definitely, um, I'm definitely curious to do that, yeah. I don't know if it would hold up. I honestly don't know if they're all as good as that one because it might have taken time to build into it. But usually a, a murder mystery, like a nice tight one-hour murder mystery, it's a it's a good watch, isn't it? You know, it should be fun. Yeah. Um, so to just move on, um, the Japanese version uh, I watched, it was not good. It was very kind of comedic, stupid, kind of silly, and it it really felt like it was doing a lot of copying from the '74 version. Uh, I do like the concept of the second episode that I I looked at, um, but how well it works, I don't know. I'll give it a four. Hmm. Pretty weak. So, Branner. Hmm. Interestingly, I, I I watched this film for the first time probably less than a year ago. I never saw it at the cinema. You know, I found it in a charity shop on DVD. I was like, yeah, well, that'll be a nice watch. I'll, I'll get that. Finally watched it, and I did not like it. Hmm. So, when I came to watch it again, I was kind of like, you know... Uh, I'd already watched four versions of it by this point. But it's interesting what you said earlier, Calvin, about how well the backstory comes across and how much of that works. Mm. When I watched it the first time, I, I think I did know the ending, like they all did it. But ultimately, I didn't know how it all came together. Mm. When I watched it this time, obviously, that's all now, well, I know everything. So perhaps it made more sense to me that time, this time because... There's, I have already more pre, pre-knowledge, right? Hmm. So basically, my res- the result of that is, when I came to rate this, I was like, do you know what? I'll, I'll give that a, a sturdy seven. I'm all right with that. I think it did a solid job. Came to look at my IMDb, and the last time I rated it, it was a five. Ooh. That's a pretty significant difference. Yeah. Um, hmm. And... How much do I express that? So basically, I split them at difference. I'm going to give this an official score of 6 out of 10. Oh, okay. Because I think that reflects, obviously, my first impressions and then later watch. Hmm. I'll I'll go next, then. Um, I'm going to give it an 8. Which, yeah, might seem uh, extreme, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I thought it did... I think it, it... 
jumped up a bit in my estimation actually re-watching the 70s version and how much better I think it did an awful lot of things and uh, put a you know, contemporary style on it. Uh, it's a bit glossy and like Sol was saying earlier, I think some of the CG is a bit uh, video gamey, mm. but overall it was strong performances and I like Branner as Poirot. Um, I, there's more emotion and suspense in it, so I uh, I prefer it on that basis. I'm I'm going the other way, I guess. I <laughs> I, I gave it a, I mean, not a lot in it because I gave the other one such a such a low seven out of ten. It's practically a six point five, and, and I, I give uh, the new one a, a six because it's yeah. just very. I don't know. I just got bored with it, <laughs> um, and I I'd never seen it before. I re- I watched it for the first time the other night. If it was the first and only version of that story on, you know, as a movie, yeah. I'd probably give it a seven, but it isn't. I think the story in general, it does suffer from this kind of middle section where we have to interrogate 12 people and kind of, it, I think it yeah. does a good job of handling that, but it's ultimately, you know, it's just like, okay, bring the next one in. And then there's like the big yeah. reveal. It, it, I think it's a, it's a lot of characters to have to deal with, basically. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. Thank you very much, Kevin, for joining us yet again. No, no, it's fine. Maybe you'll actually invite me on for a Diminisode this time, as I'll be seeing Death on the <laughs> yeah. Nile. I, I've seen Tenet, and I was not invited on that. <laughs> you saw Tenet? Oh, well, we didn't... I didn't know you'd seen Tenet. It didn't seem like something you'd go and bother with. No, well, yeah, supporting cinema. <laughs> well, well, let, let us know your thoughts on uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. You can come on the Diminisode for that. Oh, no. Oh, no, I'm not seeing that. <laughs> no, don't care. Listeners, check back next week because we've got a really, really, really exciting, fun episode with a cool guest coming. Ooh. All right, that makes me feel <laughs> good about myself. Someone more famous than Calvin Dyson. There's almost no one in that space. I don't know who it would be. <laughs> He's probably got fewer YouTube subscribers than. Mm. Yeah, that's true. But Calvin, Calvin will be uh, back the following week. Yes. So fret not Calvin fans he's uh, he's going to be setting up setting up shop for for the better part of a month uh, the week after yeah. next yeah. spoilers mm-hmm.